Thanks for checking out this sermon at New Beginnings. As a church, we exist to become an authentic, biblical community. That transforms our city and impacts the world. With the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to make you aware of a few things before we begin. First, we would love to connect with you on our website. NBBCTX.org. There you can find more information about who we are. Additional resources and links to our social media network. As well as an opportunity to give. To what God is doing in and through our church. We hope you enjoy this message. All right, so the, the, the million dollar question all week has been, uh, like, how do you transition from that to a sermon, right? Uh, but we're going to try it, all right? Amen, we're going to try it. So, so here's, here's, the, here's my thought. Like how, how, like how can there be, in the midst of sadness, of seeing people we love transition to other locations to serve churches in different places, how can we, in the midst of that, have a joy? Like, how, how can we say, okay, hey, because the kingdom is better, there is a joy in the midst of the sadness because the kingdom of God is what matters. Like, how does that work? Because when you think about it, just relationally speaking, uh, it just doesn't make sense that in the midst of sadness you would have a joy. But when you look at it through the lens of the kingdom, you have to have a joy because you understand that, that our loss in regards to relationships, right, is the kingdom of God's gain. And at the end of the day, it's not about you and it's not about me. It's not about Green Acres Baptist Church. It's not about Preston Wood and it's not about new beginnings. It is about the kingdom of God. And because it's about the kingdom of God, there can be a joy. So how, when, the, when we think about it from that perspective, it just doesn't make sense. But so let me, let me kind, of, kind of help you understand. The reason why we can have joy in the midst of the transitions that are coming is because we know that the message of Jesus is going to be advanced. We know that the name of Jesus is going to be exalted. We know that the, 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 the work of the gospel ministry will be advanced, not despite these things, but because of these things. And because of that, there is a joy that we can have. And the world looks at this and the world thinks we're crazy. You think me like, why is it that y'all's kind of main goal and aim is to see this message of the gospel uh, move forward? We think about the Let Me Explain series. The, the, one of the questions we want to wrestle with is, let me explain why we believe we must share our faith. The world looks at us and says, what is the deal? Why is it that you Christians think that everybody else should also be Christians? Because isn't that what we believe, right? We believe that every person should be a Christian, that every person should hear the message of Jesus, respond by faith, have their hearts transformed, and that they would be redeemed and saved and become followers of Christ as well. This is what we believe. And by the way, if you don't believe that, then you might not be a follower of Jesus. But for the same reason we can have joy in the midst of all this transition because the gospel's being advanced, it's the same reason that we must share our faith, that we must share the gospel. And the world is looking at us going, why is that? Well, I want to answer that question for us this morning. So grab your Bibles for a few moments. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. <coughs> Start reading in verse number 14. And what I want to do here is I want to explain why we must share our faith, why we must advance the message of the gospel. Why is it that we want other people to become Christians? And why is it that we can have joy in the midst of all of these transitions? And the answer is found right here for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul, in this passage of scripture, is giving an explanation 
of why he does what he does for the gospel ministry. Why does he preach so passionately? Why is he obsessed with advancing the message of the gospel? Why is it that he'll walk through persecution and suffering? Paul is giving an answer for that right here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you're there, say, I'm there. Paul says this in verse 14. He says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who, for their sake, died and was raised. From now on, we therefore no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on God's on, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So why is it that we are compelled to share our faith? Why is it that we are, 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 are obsessed with advancing the kingdom of God, even if it means relational loss to us? So let me give you three answers for that, or three phrases to help us wrap our mind around it. And so if you're taking notes, write this down. The first is this. We need to see our motivation. It's, it's because the gospel changes our motivation. The gospel transforms who and what we live for. So we're, we're focused on advancing the message, advancing this, this, this kingdom agenda because the gospel transforms who and what we live for. Look what Paul says in verse 14. He says, for the love of Christ controls us. It, it, it has grabbed a hold of our hearts. Why? Because we've concluded this, that one died for all and therefore all died. In other words, what he's saying is, is that Christ died for sinners. And when sinners place their faith and trust in Christ, it's as if Jesus' death is our death. So we died when we received Christ by faith with Christ. So he died and we died with him. And listen to this. And he died for all that those who live or those who have been made alive by him would no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul is simply saying, when the reality of the gospel lands on you, when the reality of the depths of God's love lands in your heart, here's what you come to understand, that Jesus loves us so much that he was willing to die on our behalf, in our place, that his love for us is so massive that in the, in the worst moments of our life, in the, the depth of our sin, Jesus chose to die for us. When that lands on you, it grabs a hold of your heart in such a way as to cause you to never want to live for yourself again, but to live with the one who died for you. He says, the love of Christ controls me, compels me, drives me. It's changed what I live for. Because I've come to the realization that, that Jesus loved me so much that he died for me, he resurrected for me, and because of that, his love captures my heart and compels me now to no longer live for me, but to live for him. Amen. I want you to, if you follow this, the motivation for Paul's life being centered on advancing the mission of God was not dependent upon Paul's love for Jesus, but rather Jesus' love for Paul. Paul says, it's the love of Christ that compels me and controls me. It's not my love for him, but his love for me. Now, why is that the case? And here's the answer. Our emotions are fickle, right? Our feelings come and go, right? 
like I have cried a lot this week, all right, thinking about all of these transitions. And I've laughed a lot, right? We, like in the same conversation. In fact, I would, I would just say, Pastor Connor and I had breakfast Monday when we were kind of working through all of this. And we laughed and cried like you wouldn't believe. So as you were there, I just want to apologize for the snot bubbles that you witnessed from us. We're sitting there, and I was like, I told him, I said, there's a lot of people in here, and they're wondering right now who's breaking up with who. That's what's happening <laughs> in this moment. I mean, it has been, I have been an emotional train wreck. And so our emotions come and go. I mean, we, we're just emotional people. Listen, what keeps us focused on the mission of God is not our love for Christ, but Christ's love for us. Because when you, when you come to understand the depth of his love and you walk in the depth of his love and you understand the price he paid for you, there is something that happens. It grabs a hold of you and says, I don't want to live for me anymore. I want to live for him. I want to advance his message. I want to advance his kingdom. His agenda becomes my agenda, not because I'm feeling it for him, but because he loves me with a relentless love. You should think about this. If you went home today and, and you, your neighbor comes to your house and says, hey, by the way, while you were gone, I need to tell you about something. Uh, there was somebody that came to your house to take some of your possessions, but don't worry. I stepped in. I intervened. And your possessions are safe and secure. Um, how would you respond to that? Well, the answer is depending upon what the possessions were, right? Like if it was a plant on your porch that someone was trying to steal and your neighbor intervened and was like, nope, not on my watch. You're not taking the plant, you know, and, and it's here. Look, look, it's right there. You would probably say, man, thank you. You're a great neighbor. You pat him on the back and you would say, man, I, I appreciate that. I owe you one. And then you'd go inside and you'd be like, that was weird. Like, I love the plant, but man, he stepped in and an altercation over a plant. But you're going to be grateful, right? But if, but if he says, no, 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 it was your children. And, and a guy came and, and was going to intrude and take them. And I intervened and now your, your kids are inside safe and secure. There'd be a whole different response. You would probably think, what, what can I do? I will exhaust my life as long as I have life trying to find a way to say thank you for the gift that you've given Listen, this is what Paul says. When I think about the cross and what Christ has done for me, it compels me. It, it, it transforms who and what I live for. Now I am singularly focused on the mission of God because of what Christ has accomplished on my behalf. This leads me to number two. Here's the second statement I want you to get. It's not just our motivation, but our message. Our message. Jesus alone is the hope of the world. Jesus alone is the hope of the world. Look what he says in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, verse 17. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, or the old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Paul is simply reminding us of the transforming work of the gospel, which makes the gospel different from any other message that's out there in religion. Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone has embraced Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. You see, here's the difference between religion and the gospel. The religion calls you to behavior modification. Change your external behavior. Conform to the rules. The gospel says, I'm going to go straight to the heart and I'm going to change the person. I'm going to transform who you are fundamentally on the inside. I'm going to make you into a brand new person. This is the message that we have. Listen, our message is, is that Jesus does not just want to come in and change the way we behave, but rather give us brand new life. And this is why Jesus is the hope of the world. And this is the message that we proclaim. Look, look what he says here in verse 18. He says, all of this, all of this transformation is from God. 
In other words, it's not from us. It's not about the message we preach is not go fix yourself, go change yourself, go conform, go do better. It is, no, no, no. All of the work is done by God. It comes from God. Look, look what he goes on to say in verse number 18. Who through Christ reconciled us to himself. You know what Paul is saying there? This transforming work, this message that we preach is a message that was initiated not by man, but by God. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Now listen, when you think about the relationship between us and God, our sin separates us. The scripture says that we are the enemies of God because of our sin. So listen, the fracture in the relationship between us and God, who initiated the fracture? You and me. Our rebellion, our sin nature, We are the ones who fractured the relationship because of the hardness of our heart. But here's what's amazing about the gospel and the message we proclaim. It is us who initiated the fracture. It is God who initiates the reconciliation. God always makes the first move. Uh, We always tell our kids all the time, like yesterday our kids were fighting, and I was like, it's like we're just referees. Let's go back to school. I just want to send you back to school. We've been like a half a day out of school, and I already want you back, right? And, 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 you know, then you, they're arguing or they're fighting. And then you look at one of your kids and you're like, tell them you're sorry. Can I just tell you, now that I've said it a few times, that's really dumb. Because if you're telling them to say you're sorry, are they sorry? What's the answer? No. You, no, you tell them you're sorry and you mean it. Like, like now, like, right? How foolish is that? I want reconciliation. Say you're sorry. Doesn't work like that. But God initiated, even though he was the offended party. Our relationship was fractured, but I'm pursuing you. You see, the message we proclaim is is that Jesus is the hope of the world because in Jesus, God is pursuing salvation for us on our behalf. Look what he goes on to say in verse number 19. He says, that is, and he's going to explain the message a little bit Uh, more deeply, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Again, the initiating love of God, the initiating reconciliation of God. How does he do this? Listen to this. Not counting their trespasses against them. Listen, understand the details of the message that we proclaim. Not counting their trespasses against them. This is how God pursues us. Now listen, I can't wrap my mind around it because I know the offenses that I have committed against God. I know my trespasses. I know the sins that I have committed, the things that I've done, the thoughts that I've had. I know that my offense toward God is great, but this is what the gospel says, that God is initiating reconciliation with you and with me on the basis of this. Your trespasses are not going to be held against you. Religion says you've got to fix, you've got to outdo, you've got to to perform. The gospel says, no, 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 your offense, it's real. Those things that you've done, I'm reconciling the relationship. And those things that stand between you and me, I'm not going to count those things against you. how How does God do that? If God is gracious and he's merciful, but also holy and just? How does a God do that? Like, how could God be just and look at me and know the sins that I've done and say, well, I'm not going to count that against you? How does God get away with that? Look, look at verse 21. For our sake, he, God, for our sake, he made him, Jesus, 
to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's how. How does a holy God, how does a just God, how does he just look at me and say, I want reconciliation, and so I'm not going to count your sins against you. How does he remain holy and just and not count our sins against us? Here's how. He takes our sin and he holds Jesus accountable for them. He takes Jesus' righteousness and he gives it to us. This passage of scripture in, in, in 2 Corinthians 5.21 is what most theologians call the great exchange. And this is how we are reconciled to God. This is why Jesus is the only hope of the world. And here's what it is. is that the, the one thing you and I need to have a relationship with God, the one thing we need to, to, to have reconciliation between us and God is this. It's one thing. And it's one thing that we cannot gain on our own and no one in this room possesses in and of ourselves. It's called righteousness. Religion can't give you righteousness. It can give you righteous acts, but it cannot give you righteousness. But righteousness is the one thing we need, and it's the thing that we cannot earn and we do not have in and of our own abilities. And so here's the beauty of the gospel. Here's the message of hope for the world. That God took your sin that was counted towards you, and he says, I'm going to take that sin. I'm not going to count it against them. I'm going to take it. I'm going to count it against Jesus. And I'm going to take Jesus's righteousness, what they need to be reconciled, and I'm going to take that and I'm going to give it to them. So that Jesus pays a debt that he didn't owe. So that the debt we owe that we couldn't pay might be paid in full. Jesus was treated like you and I deserve so that we might be treated like Jesus deserved. This is the message that we proclaim. And this is why Jesus is the hope of the world, because there's no other message like it. We need righteousness. We don't have it. Jesus has righteousness. And so he freely gives it to us. We have this sin debt. We can't pay it. So Jesus says, I'll pay it for you. Think about this. If you, if you were going to foreclose on your house today and you, you know, like, I got to be out on Monday and you get a phone call from a buddy and that buddy said to you, hey, listen, I know that you were foreclosed on your home and you owe this debt and you have no way of paying it. Here's what I want you to know. There's two things I want you to know. One, the, the debt has been paid. The house is yours. But not only that, your bank account I have placed an inheritance in your account, and you will never run out of funds. You will have money for the rest of your life. You're talking about a great day. But that's exactly what Jesus has done. He has paid our debt, and then he has given us a credit of righteousness that is more than sufficient to reconcile us to God. And listen, and God is the one who initiated it. I mean, this blows my ever-loving mind, right? This is why Paul, earlier on in verse 16, he says this. He says, from now on, I regard no one according to the flesh anymore. Although we once regarded Christ this way, we do so no longer. What does he mean when he says we, we regard no one according to the flesh anymore? Paul understands, listen, the gospel and this message is so overwhelming. Now I no longer see people merely through the lens of flesh and blood. 
I don't see people through the lens of black or white or rich or poor or from this place or this place. I no longer see people and evaluate them based upon the flesh. He said, now, I once viewed Christ based upon the flesh. In other words, for Paul, there was a day when he saw Jesus as only merely a historical figure some religious leader. But the moment his eyes were open and he saw Jesus as the redeemer that Jesus was, the resurrected one who died for him and died to give him new life, he says, the moment I saw Jesus from the lens of the gospel and understood this message, I no longer look at men and women through the lens of the flesh anymore. Now it's not categories of people because there's only two categories. There is saved and there is lost. There are those who have a debt of sin or those who have the credit of righteousness. There's only two groups of people, and it's lost or saved. In 1912, when the Titanic went down, news got back to England, and there was just frantic chaos and panic. I mean, obviously, think about you know, an event like that with no social media, no communication, no way of really getting word out. So when his families heard about this, they, they came to the pier and asked questions immediately about, was there any survivors? And if there were survivors, who are they and how do we know? And as word began to be given, what they did is they had a massive chalkboard and they had two columns. One column was saved, the other column was lost. And if your family member was a survivor, they were saved. If they perished, then they were in the lost category. You know what's amazing? If, you, if, you, if you've seen the movie or know anything about the Titanic, there were various classes of people on the boat. But after it sank, there were only two classes. There were saved and there was lost. We need to understand that there are only two groups of people, saved and lost, and we have got the message that gives hope to the world and it's the message that God has initiated reconciliation through Christ on our behalf. Which leads me to this phrase number three, our mission. Our mission. So we have this motivation. We have this message and we have a mission. God's plan A to advance his message is his people. So we've got this great message of hope. So how does God want to get this message out there? It's you and it's me. We are God's plan A. We are God's plan to get this message to the world. Look what he says here in verse 18. He says, all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So we've been reconciled to be reconcilers, right? Verse 19, he says the same thing a little bit different. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Listen to this. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. He says the same thing in a different way. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation, and he's entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation. The word entrust there is to take something valuable and put it in the care of someone else for them to steward it rightly. Uh, yesterday, my, my daughter uh, babysitted for one of the uh, family members, uh, one of our staff members, children. And uh, we're always reminded when she goes to uh, babysit that they are entrusting into her care their most valuable possession. That she, she is going to be entrusted with this, this precious gift and she has the responsibility to steward it until they come home to get their child, right? 
we have been entrusted this precious gift called the gospel. And we must steward well what has been entrusted to us. That we understand that God has given us this message to advance it, which is what he says next. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. So when we speak and we proclaim and we say to the world, listen, we are far from God, but God in his love has pursued you in Christ and wants to reconcile you. When you present the gospel and you proclaim the gospel, it is God making his appeal through you. So how does God get his message to the world? You and me. We are ambassadors. I love this. We are from one kingdom, the kingdom of God, sent with a message to the broken, fallen kingdom of this world. And listen, the message we proclaim is that there is a peace treaty available. That God and his kingdom has made steps and aims to redeem the broken kingdom. And there is a peace treaty. And so we come into a broken world who understands that there is enmity between them and God. And we are the voices, we are the mouthpieces of God, the king of all, who says to a world that is rebelled, there is hope and there, there is reconciliation and there is peace that he wants to establish. This is what we proclaim. And we are the primary voices that God is using for this message to be known. So why do we feel compelled to share the gospel? Why is it that there is this challenge to you as God's people to go and share the gospel? Why? Because, listen, we have been given and entrusted with this mission. We are God's plan A, and God is making his appeal to a fallen, broken world through you and me. And he says, he says, that's why we plead, we beg, we urge, be reconciled to God. You can hear the angst in Paul's voice. He's saying, I'm begging you, please. You're, you're far from God, but he's made a way. And so I'm, I'm asking you, listen, consider it. Think about it. Chew on it. Ponder the reality of what Christ has done so that you might be reconciled to God. This is the desperation that we should be living with daily, constantly, with our coworkers, with our, our family members, with the relatives, with the people at the ballpark. Listen, that there is, there is enmity between them and God, but God has initiated reconciliation. So therefore, we should live with a constant urgency in the message of saying, please be reconciled. This has been entrusted to us. And this is our calling. About four years ago, um, after a church service, there was a gentleman in the church service who had a heart issue, and uh, paramedics were already called, and he came in. They came in at the end of the service and, and uh, took this gentleman uh, to the emergency room, and his daughter stopped me, and it was a very busy day and kind of chaotic, and, and, and this was an older gentleman. He wasn't a believer, um, but she was. His daughter came to me and said, hey, would you come by? I don't know how much longer dad has. This is scaring me. I don't think he's going to be around much longer. Would you come and, and, and talk to dad about the gospel? And so I said, certainly I will. And, and to be honest with you, this is kind of the worst pastor moment of my life, maybe one of the most uh, worst. Uh, I forgot. I got so busy with the day that I didn't go to the emergency room that afternoon. And the next day I was leading some meetings and someone came in and said, hey, don't forget. Uh, they had called and asked if you were stopping by. And I was like, oh. So immediately I stood up. I said, I'm heading out, and Pastor Connor says, I'm going with you. And Pastor John says, me too. And so, man, we headed up to the, uh, to the ICU unit at uh, Longview Regional. When I walk in, 
the daughter was weeping, crying, and the body seemed to be lifeless. And I just, I was too late. She wanted me to come share the gospel. And I'm too late. So I walk over and I put my arm around the daughter, begin to comfort her. And I laid my hand down. She was holding her dad's hand. And I laid my hand there. And we all in the room thought he, is, he had died. And, and about the time he moved his finger. And so I, I just asked her to step aside. And th- there was this, this sense. I've never, I've never experienced this before until then. I've experienced it since then. But there's an urgency. And I leaned over and I grabbed, his name was Bob, and I grabbed Bob's hand and I held his hand. I said, Bob, if you can hear me, I need you to say yes by just squeezing my hand. That's going to be your yes. And he squeezed my hand. I said, Bob, do you, you know who I am? Do you understand what I'm saying? He squeezed my hand. I didn't care about emotions or feelings or what he thought in that moment. I leaned over and I looked at him and I said, Bob, he couldn't even open his eyes. I said, Bob, you're going to die and you're going to die in a few minutes. You're going to step into eternity. And Bob, you've never trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but he has sent me here today. And I shared the gospel with Bob, and Bob indicated he understood. And I said, Bob, do you want to trust Jesus? Do Do you want to know that you're ready for this? Do you want him to be your Lord? And he squeezed my hand, and I said, well, Bob, where you are, you can just in your mind declare what you've heard to Jesus and I said, Bob, did you do that? And he squeezed my hand, yes. Big tears. He didn't even open his eyes. His tears began to stream down. And I stepped around the side of the bed, went to the other side, and his daughter, his daughter could be in there. I leaned over and I laid my hand on their hands. And I quoted Psalm 23. And when I got to the end, he slipped into eternity. I left the hospital with two thoughts. One, how gracious is God? This this, this old man on his deathbed, that God would love him and send me on God's behalf moments before he would have to pay the full debt of his sin to rescue him and reconcile him. Second thought I had was how gracious is God that he would allow me to experience and witness that. And I left that day with this understanding of the mercy of God who saves sinners and the mercy of God who would use sinners to save sinners. Listen, we have motivation. Amen? We have a message. That message is the only hope of the world. We have a mission. And and, and we must come to the realization we are God's plan A. So how can we say goodbye to friends we love with joy in our hearts? Because we have a great motivation. We have an unbelievable message and we have a very clear mission. Why do we sit over a cup of coffee and share the gospel with a friend, with a coworker, with a relative? Because we have motivation, we have a message, and we have a mission. Starting next week, 
we are going to be in a nine-week series called Who's Your One? We are joining an effort by Southern Baptists all over the world in an effort to challenge believers to identify their Bob, their one, that they would commit to sharing the gospel with and attempt to lead them to faith in Christ, to be the voice of God, pleading for that person to be reconciled. So over the next nine weeks, we're going to preach a series of sermons that deal with various ones in the New Testament and how God used individuals to take Jesus to the one. And we're going to be asking you to identify your one. Along with that, there's a resource that we want to give you, um, that we want to make available to you. <laughs> um, it just simply is evangelism take heart, takes heart. It's a nine-week devotion. And in this devotion, various pastors have written, I've got one uh, devotion that I've written in here, um, of just sharing with you the heart of evangelism so that each day you can be reminded of what uh, God's calling you to. So for nine weeks, you, you'll walk through this. It's a great devotion, great way for you to spend seven or eight, ten minutes uh, each morning being reminded of the mission that God has given us. If you want this resource, it's going to be available in the foyer. Pastor Mike will give you more information in a moment. Uh, it's for $3, which is a pretty cheap investment. Um, for you in regards to getting you more focused on the mission of God. But listen, we have a calling that God has given us. Amen? Amen. And listen, I'm resolved in the midst of all this transition, I'm resolved to run with you. Let's get after it. Let's advance the mission of God like never uh, before. I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward, and I'm going to pray over our offering. And um, then Pastor Michael will come and make some final announcements, and we'll be dismissed. But let's, let's commit to praying together about all that God is doing and what He wants us to do. So right now, as ushers are making the way forward, let me pray. Jesus, we love You. We thank You, Lord, that You are a gracious God, that You are a God who has given us an unbelievable motivation, a great message, and a clear mission. Let us be faithful. Let us run after the things You've called us to. God, take this offering, use it to advance the things we've been talking about this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.